Welcome to Machiavelli in the Ivory Tower, a video cast series on arms control, non-proliferation, and related international security issues. I'm Sarah Bidgood, director of the Eurasian Non-Proliferation Program at the James Martin Center for Non-Proliferation Studies in Monterey, California. And I'm Hannah Notte, senior research associate at the Vienna Center for Disarmament and Non-Proliferation. Join us as we discuss cutting-edge research and what it means for real-world decision-makers. Whether it's nuclear doctrine, deterrence dynamics, regional challenges, or the state of international regimes, there's just so much to talk about. And with our guests, we'll break down how their analysis can help us make sense of a complex security landscape. In each episode, we'll bring Machiavelli into the ivory tower. Thanks for watching. We're glad you're along for the ride. Welcome to Machiavelli and the Ivory Tower. Our guest today is Dr. Mariana Bujarin, who is a research associate with the project on managing the atom at the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center. Mariana, thank you so much for making the time to join me and Hannah today. We are thrilled to have you with us. Thank you so much for inviting me. So let's jump right in. Um, you have a new book out. It is called Inheriting the Bomb, the Collapse of the USSR and the Nuclear Disarmament of Ukraine. I'm sure it is more timely than you possibly could have imagined when you were writing the book. Um, I'm wondering if you can kick us off by telling us a little bit about you know, the story that you tell in the book, um, some of your major findings, maybe what motivated you to write the book and, and who should read it. So the book is uh, the product of, well, more than 10 years of my research and writing. It is based on my PhD dissertation that I started writing back in or um, conceived and researched since 2010. So it's it's been more than uh, more than uh, ten years. Um, uh, it is quite heavily ad adapted, so it's it's a quite a departure from what the original dissertation had been. Um, simply because as I was uh, I was writing this book. Um, I saw that more space should be dedicated to actually the empirical part of the story as I was finding more and more gaps, as it were, in the story of Ukraine's nuclear disarmament. And as you mentioned, as the time progressed, it became um, more and more pertinent uh, given the, 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 relation, the, the uh, developments in Ukraine and between Ukraine and Russia. So uh, the, the title of the book is sort of, and subtitle are self-explanatory. Uh, it is essentially a story of Ukraine's nuclear disarmament, but I was also attempting to give a glimpse of, of the whole process of Soviet dissolution through this lens, through the lens of uh, Soviet nuclear armaments and debates over the, the fate of Soviet nuclear arsenal after its collapse. And specifically something that hasn't received uh, as much attention is debates over succession rights, right? So what we had essentially was this really unprecedented occurrence where one of the major nuclear powers and a recognized nuclear weapons state under the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, the NPT, had disintegrated. And the questions of who should succeed it and how um, the, uh, the kind of the status of nuclear arms outside of Russia would be treated was also uncharted international political and international legal territory. 
Um, and I think one of the things that perhaps this book would be helpful with is, um, is sort of um, upstaging this constant conflation that I see as a, as a Ukrainian and as a scholar, this constant conflation between the Soviet Union, the USSR and Russia, right? That has happened back in the Soviet days. We casually, or even, you know, some of the very, very bright and, and very well-informed people would refer to the Soviet Union, Soviet Russia, right, unproblematically. And now we say, you know, oh, Russia, formerly the Soviet Union. But that transition was not so seamless. That they had, it had to happen. There had to be a policy that was formulated and a policy that was implemented. Uh, so, you know, Russia is not just sort of the Soviet Union, just a little bit truncated, and then the earth opened up and out of it came the Belarusians and the Kazakhs and Ukrainians. Those were the people and the institutions in the republics that were there all along. And uh, even though they were invisible for the West through much of the Soviet period, they came to matter in late 80s and in the early 90s when these countries became independent. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping to, um, to kind of shed light on that process um, through the book. And another um, you know, contribution I'm hoping to make is to tell the story based on Ukrainian sources, but also sources from Belarus and Kazakhstan. And even though the, the story from Belarus and Kazakhstan became sort of um, secondary in my book, uh, my dissertation was more e evenly balanced between those three cases, in the book, I decided to focus more squarely on Ukraine, um, but I, I endeavored to really tell the story from the perspective of those countries using the interview data and, and archival materials from those states. We do have some very, very good accounts of uh, the post-Soviet nuclear disarmament uh, story, but most of them are based on Western sources. So this is you know, that no book can aim to be sort of the comprehensive story of, uh, of a certain occurrence, but I, I'm hoping that my book would uh, contribute sort of the non-Western uh, part, uh, part of the story uh, to the general historical record um, of that unprecedented set of events. That's great, Mariana. I'm, I actually wanna pick up on sort of this last point that you made, which relates to your sourcing. Um, at our work at CNS and in Hannah's and my work in particular, we often do sort of comparative historical case study analysis. So I'm always very curious about how people kind of go about getting um, the story that they end up telling in their research. So could you tell us a little bit more about the sources that you ended up using? Um, you mentioned wanting to tell this from the perspective of Ukraine. You know, how did you go about doing that? So to begin with, um, my dissertation when it was conceived was more of a political science of an IR type of work, where I looked at um, the, the workings of in the international nonproliferation norm uh, that kind of reverberated uh, differently in the three settings, in Ukraine and Belarus and in Kazakhstan. So Ukraine needed a lot more cajoling, right? It wasn't, um, you know, it took a longer and more convoluted path towards the NPT. Uh, and even though sort of the outcome uh, in all three cases was the same, I was interested in the process. I thought, well, why some countries adopt, you know, the nonproliferation norm and join the NPT kind of easily like that, and then, you know, others um, uh, do not. 
And I was hoping, you know, just to do this comparative case study and mostly draw maybe on secondary sources and supplement a little bit uh, with original research, you know, as, as sort of just to have these case studies. And as I was starting to put this together, I realized, you know, exactly that, that the, there are accounts, but there are A, most of them are from, from that period, from early 90s, right? So when this was fresh, this was still interesting. There were a few really, uh, really, really good, really high quality monographs or chapters that were written about this. And then it sort of, the topic disappeared and it became either less relevant or just, uh, you know, scholars did not devote much attention to it. And as I was trying to reconstruct the case studies, reconstruct these stories, I saw that they were, the accounts, the existing accounts were, were mostly based on Western sources. Some, uh, some had uh, interview data from the people who were, um, who were making decisions at the time. So the president and, you know, uh, Bill Potter at uh, Monterey wrote a very, uh, very good um, uh, uh, monograph, I think in 1996, and he went out and he talked to the people. But I thought, surely, you know, there must be more to this. There's, the, there's these archival materials. And I actually, I wasn't trained as a historian. I, this was my, um, sort of, I did this by trial and error through the archives, but I just basically went to Ukraine and installed myself there for some time and started going to the archives and, and, uh, and digging in at the central archive uh, of, of state institutions uh, in Kiev and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs archive. I was able to go to Kazakhstan to the presidential archive there. Um, and I was actually surprised uh, by the wealth of material that was, that was there and that was accessible. So now I was really lucky because the bulk of that field work, especially in Ukraine, happened before 2014. And uh, from what I understand now, access to some of these archives and especially the documents pertaining to security policy and you know anything nuclear, which is um, which always uh, rings bells. Um, has been more restricted. And indeed, uh, when I went back in, in the summer of 2017, um, I had found that some of the previous documents I was able to, uh, to access were withheld, were no longer uh, available. So uh, through a combination of luck um, and just uh, trial and error and, and learning to, to navigate the archives, I was able to piece that story together. But as later on, when I was already a postdoc at uh, managing the atom at Harvard and later at the Davis Center, Harvard Davis Center for Russian Eurasian Studies, I was able to supplement the story also from the American side. So from the Bush uh, senior, uh, Bush 41st um, presidential library, uh, from you know, National Security Archives has a, has a wealth, a wealth of materials that hasn't even been you know, the surface hasn't been scratched on that. There's a lot of documents on CTR. So, you know, if all I can say is encourage scholars to, to go and, and make good use uh, of these documents. Mariana, you and Matt Bunn just published an article very recently in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists discussing Russia's spurious allegations that Ukraine is developing a nuclear capability. Could you help our viewers and listeners understand 
why these Russian claims are, as you call them in the article, dangerous nonsense. Yes, uh, as Matt Bunn and I argue in the in the article that you mentioned, Hannah, um, you know, uh, and which should be very well known to the Russian powers that be, uh, Ukraine actually is is quite some ways uh, from from having access to the kinds of nuclear technologies and nuclear capabilities that are necessary to launch a fully fledged nuclear program. That was actually true back, um, you know, 30 years ago when Ukraine came into the possession uh, or, you know, became the inheritor uh, of this uh, nuclear capability and nuclear arms. So what Ukraine actually inherited back at the time was a chunk of, uh, of a nuclear arsenal that was developed by a different country for the strategic purposes of that country. Um, these, some of these assets were more easily seizable, quote unquote, but others would have been quite difficult to refashion, uh, you know, um, for Ukraine's, you know, Ukraine's strategic uh, purposes and strategic ends, uh, for instance. Uh, this is not to say, you know, Ukraine did um, at that time, back then, probably had a greater capacity than it does now. There, there was such thing as kind of knowledge atrophy and institutional forgetting as much as there is institutional learning. So there were scientists back at the time that were had clearances in the Soviet nuclear program. Uh, there were institutions that collaborated with the Soviet, you know, with the with the Soviet military industrial complex, but. Um, in, in terms of a nuclear weapons program, Ukraine was a lot more generously endowed in terms of being able to um, manufacture delivery vehicles, such as missiles or even aircraft and bombers, uh, than it was in terms of, um, of the nuclear fuel cycle. Ukraine had, and to this day, has uranium mining and milling. That's pretty much it, right? <laughs> so that's for all of us who, who know a little something about what it takes to produce, um, to manufacture nuclear fuel, we understand that there needs to be a set of conversion facilities, then enrichment facilities, then fuel fabrication facilities. There needs to be, uh, there need to be weapon uh, labs that design warheads um, and you know, uh, know how to fit them onto a missile. So at that, at that point, there were uh, pieces, uh, of that uh, in Ukraine. Of course, there were physical weapons uh, themselves. It would have been risky, of course, to try and dismantle a Russian-made nuclear uh, or uh, a Soviet-made nuclear weapon and try to kind of retro, retro, uh, reverse engineer it or something like that. Um, but that was a lot, there was a lot more material, as it were, to work with then that there is now that Ukraine had for 30 years you know, cooperated with the IEA and all of its facilities under safeguards. Um, there has been, as a part, uh, as a result of nuclear security summit, summitry, uh, all of the highly enriched uranium, um, some 250 kilos between Kharkiv and Kiev had been removed from Ukraine. So there, there isn't even that bit of fissile material uh, that's, that's left there. Uh, Ukraine has one research reactor in Kiev, uh, in Kharkiv, uh, as we have uh, have been keeping an eye on it uh, recently with the Russian attacks. There is a subcritical assembly, which is not 
uh, the kind of facility that can remotely produce the, uh, the, the kind of fissile material necessary for a bomb. There are, um, uh, there are, there are um, storages of spent fuel at Chernobyl, specifically spent fuel from the Chernobyl reactors, the RBMK reactors, that are relatively rich in plutonium, but you would need to build a plutonium separation facility. Again, something that you know you can't, you can't do under the bombs or even you know in a peacetime without uh, running afoul uh, of the IEA. So, you know, perhaps if in some kind of long-term um, perspective, long-term uh, timescale, Ukraine, just like dozens and dozens of other countries, could find a way to, to launch such a program. Russian claims today have absolutely no basis. And the thing is, the Russians know it because they know very well the nuclear capacities and nuclear programs. Um, you know, of Ukraine, and all the more so that, you know, these are the same people who have been for years saying, oh, Ukrainians knew nothing about nuclear things when they inherited these bombs back in the 90s, and it was like monkey with a grenade and all of that kind of derisive thing. So, um, you know, clearly anyone who knows anything about <laughs> nuclear weapons production could, uh, could understand just how nonsensical Russian claims are. Thanks for that, Mariana. Let's return to the book. The book looks at the circumstances under which Ukraine acceded to the NPT, which you already mentioned, and in that context uh, gave up the nuclear warheads on its territory to Russia. Now, what do you think are the implications of Russia's war against Ukraine, but also uh, Russia's saber rattling that we've, that we've heard in recent weeks for the future of the non-proliferation regime, including the NPT. I mean, we do now have a review conference of the NPT finally scheduled for August uh, of this year. What do you think are the implications here? So Hannah, as you mentioned, um, as part of the deal to convince Ukraine to join the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, the NPT, uh, as a non-nuclear weapons state, uh, the depository states of the NPT, the United States, uh, Britain, and the Russian Federation signed with Ukraine a so-called Budapest Memorandum on Security Assurances to Ukraine. Now, this document is now being hotly debated, uh, just as hotly debated as it was forgotten <laughs> completely uh, for some 20 or so years. Um, the, the significance of the Budapest Memorandum back then was, um, well, A, it was part of the deal that Ukraine negotiated and got, and it was a fair deal in my estimate. But the very fact that Ukraine got a deal was a recognition in, a, in and of itself that these were Ukrainian weapons to give up. And that already was an achievement because, you know, the Russian Federation said no. So the very fact that Ukraine did get this deal was in and of itself important to Ukraine as a way of recognition that these were Ukrainian weapons to give up. This was not a foregone conclusion. This was actually part, the crux of the debate because the Russian Federation said, Ukraine has no claim to those. Those are, are uh, nuclear weapons and Ukraine just simply needs to transfer them uh, to Russia. You know, very much so like, you know, US nuclear weapons in Turkey or in Belgium or elsewhere. 
but the, 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 the crux of the negotiations on the Ukrainian part was to say, no, we are successors of the Soviet Union, just as much as the Russian Federation is. It is true we don't want to hold on to these weapons, but we are entitled to a fair deal for giving them up. So in 1992, 93, 94, this was basically the whole, um, the whole subject of negotiations between Russia and the United States and Ukraine. Now, the, the negotiations of the security assurance part uh, of this deal started already in June 1992. And Ukrainians, you know, perceiving uh, not <laughs> unjustifiably in retrospect, that uh, you know, this, this Russian Federation, this new Russia might be you know, a continuation of the old uh, in more ways that Ukrainians cared uh, to, to live next to. And um, you know, the, the questions of, of Crimea, of Sevastopol, of the division of the Black Sea Fleet were already becoming very, very thorny issues. Um, so Ukrainians felt you know, legitimately threatened and wanted to provide for their security somehow. Uh, and they, they demanded uh, or requested security guarantees, quote unquote. Uh, that was something they in the end could not get, not from the United States, because in, in, the United, in the US perception, a guarantee is something that's akin to the Article 5 commitment of NATO, for instance. And it involves a military pledge, right? A pledge to participate militarily somehow in the security of a state that is being guaranteed. And that is, you know, understandably something the United States was not willing to promise a pledge to, to this new country, Ukraine, uh, right? No matter, no matter how the Ukrainian diplomats tried. Um, Ukrainians tried to say, all right, well, then maybe we could have this in, in a legally binding format as a treaty, for instance. But then, you know, a treaty would have to go to Congress and, and receive uh, the consent uh, for ratification. And everyone who operates in Washington knows that if you can avoid going to Congress or to Senate to, uh, to get approval uh, for a treaty, you do it. And, and you know, the, the U.S. could or the administrations, first uh, Bush and then Clinton, they could. They, you know, they had a lot of leverage. Um, and there was Ukraine and the, there was these two large nuclear states, um, they had more leverage than Ukraine did in negotiations. So in the end, they agreed this memorandum of, of understanding, which was basically a political document. In terms of content, of substance of it, it really didn't, it didn't pledge anything new to Ukraine. They were mostly clauses copy-pasted from other multilateral documents, such as the UN Charter, such as the OSC Helsinki Final Act, and the uh, negative and positive security assurances that NPT nuclear weapon states give to all non-nuclear non, uh, states under the NPT. So that was sort of the, the content of it. The only new thing was the provision for um, a uh, consultation mechanism. So parties should convene and consult in case there their issues with the memorandum. Uh, that that mechanism was invoked on March 5th, um, 2014. There was a meeting of signatories. Of course, you know, the, the Russian Federation did not attend it. Uh, there was a statement that uh, came out. And then 
again, things kind of went quiet and the, and the memorandum as a document itself was sidelined um, for, for whatever reason, that's for future historians to look into the documents and establish. Um, but both the breach of these of the memorandum by the Russian Federation and the further sidelining of, of this memorandum in the political discourse that followed, I believe is extremely damaging to the non-proliferation regime, broadly speaking. Because, you know, as we all know, international institutions are very difficult to build and then are very easy to damage, right? NPT is an essentially discriminatory regime. And there are a set of bargains that are there to ameliorate these, this unequal treatment of equal sovereign states under the treaty, right? So five states are recognized nuclear weapon states and the rest have to you know, forego any uh, you know, plans to develop nuclear weapons. That's an unequal treatment. Um, and you know, the understanding is that overall that situation should be better uh, for everybody somehow uh, than not having a treaty. Um, well, I mean, for one, we've seen already a, a growing rift between nuclear weapon states and non-nuclear weapon states within, within the regime, right? There's kind of this swelling, this, this kind of insurgency, you know, based on, uh, on the, you know, the perception that nuclear weapon states are not holding up their part of the bargain. They're not fulfilling uh, their obligations under Article 6 uh, on arms control and disarmament. Uh, and, you know, the ban treaty is the outcome of that, is the outcome of that rift. And so now you have a situation where a major nuclear weapon state not only, you know, does not do enough to control nuclear arms, it is actually invading <laughs> a non-nuclear weapon state that it had guaranteed to secure, um, you know, in whatever terms. But, you know, the Budapest Memorandum is now, is, is, is now part and parcel of the broader non-proliferation regime. It had accompanied, as it were, was an attachment to Ukraine's act of accession uh, to the treaty. So whatever its form, whether it's legally binding or not, it is, is part now of the broader framework. And, um, you know, and one has to wonder what kind of value a security assurance has anymore for future proliferation, non-proliferation, uh, you know, as a tool to, to, to reassure um, other potential uh, proliferators. So, I, I, I mean, it's hard to um, assess now the full scope of the, of the fallout, but I'm just, I, I'm just, um, I grapple to find any positive outcomes uh, out of the, both the breach and, um, and kind of the, the Western in unwillingness to, to make much use, uh, even either rhetorically or politically, out of this document. Quite a pessimistic picture indeed, uh, Mariana. Can I just follow up and ask, is your assessment equally pessimistic when it comes to the prospects for nuclear arms control. I mean, we've had a strategic stability dialogue between the United States and Russia that was commenced last summer that appeared to be going somewhere. Of course, that has now been suspended. How do you see the prospects for anything in the realm of strategic reductions, 
talking uh, tactical nuclear weapons, let alone drawing other nuclear weapon states uh, into arms control? It is possible uh, and likely that strategic arms control and the uh, prospect of, of negotiating and signing the follow-on treaty to New START, for instance, is one of the casualties of this current war. Treaties take a long time to negotiate uh, and sign. And we know, we all know that this next treaty um, would have been even more difficult to negotiate and more difficult to verify because the United States would have been keen to bring in the non-strategic nuclear weapons into the picture. And uh, you know, we, are, we were looking for ways, uh, sustainable ways to verify nuclear warhead destruction, something that is extremely tricky and has never, never been done before. Um, so, you know, perhaps the silver lining in this whole, um, in this whole story is that because you know, Russia is, is kind of brandishing its nuclear might to deter Western involvement in, in the conflict. I think that's kind of superfluous anyways. Um, you know, there are, there are very good reasons why the United States and NATO would not get involved, whether Mr. Putin oppresses upon everyone how big a nuclear power he is. Um, but, uh, but I think a very real worry the non-negligible chance and non-negligible concern that Russia might perhaps resort to the use of tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine as a demonstrative use, as a way to, to end the war that's not going uh, according to Mr. Putin's plan, ended quickly and ended on Russian terms. Uh, again, it's, it's highly unlikely, but the chance is greater than zero now. We, we have to contemplate it as a as a, as a possibility, um, a number of analysts have come out and weighed in on that. Uh, so, so that kind of scare, that kind of realization might actually spur, um, you know, when the dust settles on this war, might spur um, the, the pressures and the, the, the public perhaps uh, urge, you know, uh, to do something about arms control. There might be more pressures from the ground up now that this uh, that this idea and this this topic has become a lot more, you know, pervasive, and there's a greater awareness of it publicly. I mean, we've been saying for a long time that hey, publics don't really care. Publics care about economy. The publics, you know, it's no longer like in the Cold War where people, you know, did duck and cover when it was so top of mind. Well, this this actually brings it back you know, to the very, very top of minds. And hopefully it might put pressure on, on the political leaders to then pursue, you know, arms control um, in, in a more effective way. And there, it's also a big question to us, the analysts, we have spent so many decades and so many, so many pieces of paper have been, you know, trees have been felled to, to write the treatises about nuclear deterrence. But we have thought of how to deter nuclear war and nuclear exchange. We have not given enough thought of how to deter nuclear use against a non-nuclear weapons country. And right now, as it stands, there's actually nothing to deter it, uh, nothing that I can see, other than maybe Ukrainian air defenses, which are suboptimal. Um, Mariana, this is so fascinating. And I think we're sort of getting into a conversation about 
some of our assumptions within the field of IR that underpin some of these policy recommendations that people are discussing as they think about you know, the, the resolution to this war and also what's going to happen next. Um, you had what I thought was a really great and insightful thread on Twitter last week where you made this observation that the war in Ukraine should prompt some serious soul searching and reconsideration within the field of IR about some of these assumptions. Um, I hoped you could kind of recap some of the points that you made in that thread and help us understand a little bit more about where, you know, in your view, the last 16, 17, 18 days since February 24th should challenge some of those assumptions that we tend to hold in this field. I mean, I, um, a Twitter thread is a Twitter thread and uh, it, was, uh, it was written in a, in a bit of an emotional way. But I think the main points that I was trying to make there is that uh, we miss a lot if we just conceive of the world that's made up of these great powers. Um, and this is not a new criticism of IR. There has been a lot of progress made to look at, you know, the agency of other states. But I think, it, you know, both for Moscow's planning and in the way perhaps things were looked from Washington as well, there was a, a great overestimation of what a responsible nuclear power would do, right? Uh, someone like Russia, of what the rationale and the rational calculations might look like on their, uh, on their part. And, um, you know, underestimation of what the Ukrainian defenses could do, right? We, just a few years ago, uh, when the Congress authorized the release of Javelins, the first the first batch of these anti-tank uh, weapons to Ukraine as it was defending its, itself in, uh, in the eastern provinces in the Donbass, the Obama administration decided not to release these weapons because it thought it they would be, I don't know, escalatory or uh, perhaps because Ukrainian military was uh, unable to to learn to use them or it was so corrupt that, it, that they would be sold on the black market. So there's not to say that there isn't corruption, not, but there's these kind of preconceived ideas of what the small states or smaller states are capable of. And I think this is what's going on in Ukraine today is a reevaluation uh, of, um, you know, of that approach. I mean, I've, I've had people who dealt for decades with the former Soviet Union still to this day asking me, Oh, is Ukrainian really a separate language, or is it a dialect of Russian? There's such small, uh, there's such limited competency in in knowing these other cultural um, and political um, context, especially in the nuclear field, precisely because it has been focused on these nuclear powers, which also, you know, happen to be the P5 and, you know, and a collection of sort of, of auxiliary others like, um, you know, Israel and Pakistan and, uh, and India and North Korea that are sort of outside of the pale somewhere. So I think that's one set of questions that we have to really evaluate the agency uh, in, uh, in, uh, in IR. And I, I dare say that much of the NATO expansion debate has also focused very much of like, oh, the West expanded NATO, as if it was merely the West, the collective West or the Washington's decision to do so. And we, um, 
we don't pay enough attention to the Poland's, to, to the Czech Republic's and, and the Hungary's of the world that actually, you know, made a case for themselves and a case that was legitimate and the case that was that was heated at the time for for very good reasons. Again, I, I think they're feeling pretty good right now <laughs> about being in NATO. Um, so that's that's one part. Another part is is exactly um, you know what we've been discussing about the non-proliferation regime and the assumptions that we made uh, about the main bargains uh, encoded in it, the bargains on which it had rested, um, and they, the quality of a, and the, the level of assurances that non-nuclear states can rely on for for their security, right, to not be attacked, <laughs> to not suffer existential threat. We're not talking about kind of encroachment uh, on border regions even anymore. We're talking in Ukraine, the survival of the state as it has been for the last 30 years at the hands of a nuclear armed power that is not shy using nuclear threats to deter you know, any greater assistance that Ukraine is already um, uh, receiving. So we see this kind of the, 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 the situation is stacked very unevenly. And we assume that there is a sort of a set of responsibilities that these great powers have that no, they wouldn't, that no. Um, and and this, the, some, a lot of these assumptions are being undermined right now in a most, in a most tragic way. So I, I do think when we emerge uh, from all of this, we'd have to reconsider the, the nuclear nonproliferation regime as it is conceived right now. Thank you for that, Mariana. And with that, I want to come to our last question for today. So uh, the main objective in Machiavelli and the Ivory Tower, this new videocast series, is to draw connections between cutting edge new academic research and real world challenges. So I want to ask you, where do you think the academic and research community can be most helpful at this time in contributing to policymaker and also public knowledge about this ongoing Russian war in Ukraine? Um, and what strategies do you use uh, to do this most effectively? Thank you, Hannah. That's a, that's a really big question. And I think it is certainly, you know, we're a collection of, of scholars and thinkers with very different foci, uh, right, of our work. And I think every one of us can find something, you know, to uh, to learn from this situation, whether, you know, it is the the, the conventional military operations and, and the escalation letters uh, or the way, you know, nuclear signaling and nuclear threats work uh, or, you know, the, the kind of the kind of underpinnings of the global nuclear order in which we live and how sustainable how sustainable it is and it's going to be um, after, uh, after this. I mean, I can imagine scholars looking at how to, to reform the UN Security Council and, and the General Assembly. Uh, I mean, we see, we see it gridlocked like in most really important cases because one of the major countries and a veto wielding power is the actual culprit and then is the aggressor. We will have to rethink our nuclear energy governance. 
uh, and the way IAEA is capable to, you know, to 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 help ensure a nuclear the security of nuclear power plants. We see Russian forces shelling and occupying civilian nuclear facilities in Ukraine, which is again Russia has been part of the unanimous decision at the IAEA. Uh, to recognize that, that use of military force or threat of military force against a civilian nuclear facility, uh, facility constitutes the breach of UN charter. So uh, it, there's a lot of rethinking we have to do when a major stakeholder in the international system and the global nuclear governance basically goes rogue. Uh, and we find ourselves in the situation where there's very few firebreakers, where there's very few things we as an international community can do. Uh, and the most effective thing right now is basically arming Ukrainians. That's, that's all there is. It boils down to, to you know, a few hundred thousand Ukrainian uh, you know, men and women uh, standing up to, to the aggressor. And of course, uh, you know, the united Western response in terms of sanctions. Um, I think the economists on that, on that end will have, uh, will have a very interesting set of, uh, of, you know, research questions and empirical data to see what it takes to extract the world's 11th largest economy from, from the world economy uh, and, and the fallout of that. I think the questions of energy and our dependence of, on um, uh, on oil and gas, uh, especially from the countries that have uh, sort of unsavory regimes is going to come, uh, you know, the, those, those chickens will come to roost and something we've been discussing for a long time, but now we're in, in this real crux where Europe is highly dependent on Russia. Um, so I, I really think this will be, uh, this, this will shake up both the, the practice and the study of international relations in many uh, in many important ways and many interesting ways. Mariana, thank you so much for taking the time with us this morning. This has been such a fascinating conversation. We've loved getting the chance to hear about your work, your new book, its relationship with what we're seeing right now in the world. So, so thank you um, to our viewers. Thank you again for tuning in and, and we'll see you next time. And thank you so much for talking to me.